Okay. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Matthew 27. Unlike recent classes where we've had uh, a lot of flipping back and forth between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we are starting a new episode today in which we only have a single gospel account. That is the suicide of Judas Iscariot. Uh, it is episode 30 in the uh, outline for Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. We uh, wrapped up episode 29 last week, and uh, we actually had combined 26, 27, 28, 29 when we uh, kind of combined the different trials. Uh, we will do something similar with uh, 31, 32, 33, I think, uh, maybe even 34, 35. Coming up, we've got the trial before Pilate, the uh, trial before Herod, the retrial and when he returns back to Pilate. So that's trials 4, 5, and 6 uh, coming up. And then we have the mistreatment by the Roman soldiers and we have the, uh, the, the walk to Golgotha, things like that. So um, I'll have to decide before we get that far how many of those events we're going to combine as well. And at least the three trials, though, like we did with the first three trials. We, we put them together into a single outline, and I believe we'll do the same thing with uh, trials four, five, and six. But before we get to that, we have this single episode in between dealing with the suicide of Judas Iscariot. And uh, Christopher actually walked into my office the other day and um, saw this slide up on the screen, and he was, he was surprised. He says he didn't realize that... Uh, that uh, Judas's death came so early. He thought it came, you know, after Jesus's death, or you know, in between Friday and Sunday somewhere. You know, um, didn't realize that no, it happened on this on this day. It happened in the morning, uh, in between the trials from the the uh, the Jewish trials and the Roman trials. So, uh, in any event, this is where we are. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 10. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are equipped to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to receive instruction. We ask for your blessing upon our time together. Uh, that you would lay aside distractions, that you would fix uh, our attention firmly upon the uh, material that you have for us to learn. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, let's just read through it here. Matthew 27. We have uh, wrapped up 26 with uh, Peter's denials and the rooster crowing. And uh, Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's how chapter 26 ended. And then 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. And we will get to Pilate uh, down in verse 11. In between, though, we have verses 3 through 10. And so in the meantime, while uh, uh, they're, they're taking him over to the Roman praetorium, uh, we have this episode here dealing with Judas. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned. 
saw that he'd been condemned. And the condemnation that we have here in verses 1 and 2. I don't know why it was such a surprise, (laughs) but there it is. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money uh, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose uh, price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. All right, so this is what we have to deal with. And there's quite a bit here in these verses. And uh, some puzzles that we will work our way through. Have some, uh, some fun with it. Not entirely pleasant. Uh, you know, suicide is not a topic that... Uh, generally lends itself to to fun or a light-hearted approach. Uh, but there are, there are some puzzles in this passage that we can't have fun with and we can take delight in. Uh, for example, the quotation from Jeremiah there in verse 9, uh, spoken about through Jeremiah the prophet. And you flip back to the Old Testament, you find out these verses actually come from Zechariah. They don't come from Jeremiah. And so how do we have a quotation uh, from Jeremiah that actually comes from Zechariah. And is that a problem? <laughs> All right. It's a puzzle, not a problem. And we will, uh, we will answer it uh, as we reach that point. We also have to dispel some flaws, I think, to this. Uh, the idea that Judas felt remorse. All right. And is that the same as repentance? And we know that it's not. We'll give you the vocabulary here and prove that it's not repentance. Judas is not getting saved here. Uh, he does identify his sin. Uh, does that is that equivalent to salvation? See, uh, no, not at all. And lots of unbelievers know that they're sinners and yet fail to accept the provision for their sin when it comes to the necessity of the gospel and things of that nature. So, simply identifying your personal sins is not adequate enough to. Uh, to uh, result in eternal life, and and we see this. So we're going to take a number of these items piece by piece, and then really the the pinnacle of hypocrisy here comes in as the chief priests try to figure out what to do with the blood money, all right? Because they said, well, we can't accept this. Uh, it's not sanctified. It's not acceptable for temple um, uh, use. Okay, well. Don't you see the hypocrisy in that then? Because it's your blood money. You're the ones that paid that blood money. And if it's not acceptable for temple use, then why is it acceptable for uh, messianic murder? All right. Why is it acceptable that you can spend this blood money to uh, to put the Christ to death? And so there's tremendous amount of uh, hypocrisy here that they seem to resolve to their satisfaction. Uh, they figure that the uh, potter's field is uh, is a good use for it. And uh, as a bearer place for strangers, we'll discuss that, uh, how their expediency ends up, uh, you know, fulfilling scripture, fulfilling what God said was going to happen hundreds of years prior and uh, and different things there. Well, let's start with Judas, the betrayer under point one. Judas, the betrayer. And uh, you can even think of that as a as an official name. 
Judas, the, uh, the one who betrayed him. Judas the betrayer. It's like Alexander the Great or William the Conqueror or um, Charles the Fat or what, you know, what have you. Um, Ivan the Terrible. All right. You get these name uh, appellations attached to the end there. Well, Judas will eternally be the betrayer. Okay. And um, we'll have to spend some time on this. In fact, I'm not even sure how far we're going to get if we get beyond uh, the aspects of paradidomy and betrayal. There's tremendous doctrine to be gleaned just from the word study itself. Principles that we pick up on by evaluating the assortment of passages where the term appears. And, you know, much less the, uh, the blessings and benefits that come from a comprehensive study on betrayal where we learn uh, all the examples that we have in Scripture, how the Lord endured betrayal, how David endured betrayal, how, uh, how we're expected to endure betrayal, and, and what's our response supposed to be? Do we fight back evil for evil, fire for fire? Do we, uh, do we do unto others the way they've done unto us, <laughs> right? Or hit them first before they can hit us kind of a thing? Well, how do we... Uh, how do we respond to betrayal? Because it is never pleasant when it happens. Uh, and the examples that we have here of the Lord are, uh, are wonderful for our edification. All right, so we start off with Judas the betrayer. And the emphasis here is what appeared before his eyes. He beheld the Lord's condemnation. He beheld the Lord's condemnation. And the, fine, the fifth of the subpoints that we're going to see under this deals with that beholding and the emphasis on the beholding. And it's uh, another commentary, I think, on the human experience or a uh, remarkable observation to be made with respect to fallen humanity who, uh, in our darkness and in our, in our rebellion, we, we, uh, we think we know what we want. And we commit all kinds of sin and darkness and ugliness and wickedness to, to get what we want. And we plan for it and we scheme for it. And we, it doesn't matter who gets hurt so that we can get what we want. And then how many times do we get what we want <laughs> and then we see it for what it is? All right. And the, the poison of that then is dissettling or is, is, is to be rejected. Here's, here is Judas beholding. It says in verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw, beheld. The vocabulary on that is uh, edone, and we'll spell that out here shortly. Uh, when he beheld that he had been condemned. Well, what was he expecting? And, and there's a lot of speculation on that, and we can debate it back and forth. Uh, one theory is that he... He didn't expect Jesus to submit to it. <laughs> you know, he didn't really expect that he would go so meekly and allow himself to be arrested and allow himself to be put to death. That the betrayal uh, was going to finally be the trigger that would cause Jesus to quit goofing off and finally destroy those Romans and, and bring in the Messianic kingdom. Okay? And the shock of all shocks that he submits humbly to the arrest and that he uh, allows himself to be given over is uh, perhaps... What, uh, what pushes Judas over the edge here. Um, I suppose that's a good way to ponder that because we don't have actually the inner workings of his thinking other than the description of his regret, that he felt remorse. He felt remorse when he saw the condemnation. 
Okay? And so I think it's probably legitimate that he did not expect the guilty verdict, or he did not expect the, uh, Jesus to submit to the unfair judgment. Because uh, Judas knows that he's sinless. He knows he's never observed a single sin. He's never observed a blasphemy. He's never observed any of it. And they had to put forth false testimony in order to get the conviction. So, uh, we'll take it step by step here, though, because we really have to focus, first of all, on the betrayal. Vocabulary that we're going to spend our time in today is the Greek verb paradidomi. P-A-R-A, para. Preposition that means alongside, like parakaleo, uh, when you come alongside to encourage, or you come alongside to comfort, or you come alongside in an exhortation. Uh, only instead of kaleo, we end it with didomi. Didomi means to give. Didomi means to give. And so to give over, to hand over, to, uh, to pass along. Think of it as a, uh, we had the Olympics not too long ago, the, uh, the, uh, the relay races, right? Where uh, the runner's running and then the, he's coming up to the next runner and he starts his running and then they're alongside for a brief moment. They hand off the baton and then the second runner uh, takes off with a fresh burst of speed, okay? So it's a handing over or it's a handing off. Paradidomi. Number 3860 is the Strong's Concordance number. Didomi, by the way, has a number of uses itself uh, related to giving. It's a primary verb that means to give, and it's not a, a rare verb by any extent. And then uh, the compound paradidomi is not a rare word either with 119 uses. Paradidomi has a uh, considerable application all on its own. Now look at the variety of this, though. Okay, there's a variety of expressions, the way that it's used, because the verb itself is not a bad verb. There's nothing intrinsic about handing somebody off or handing something off. Okay, and there's a difference between a thing and a person. I understand that. But uh, if I'm simply handing something over, well, maybe I'm supposed to hand something over. Maybe I'm supposed to pay for something. I'm supposed to hand something over or maybe um, uh, I'm handing something over in a positive way because I'm entrusting something into somebody's care. Like, into thy hands I commit my spirit. All right? Uh, or maybe it's traditions that are being passed down. Or maybe it's the truth that's being passed along from older pastors to younger pastors. The things that you have heard from me and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The verb itself is not bad. Now, when you're delivering a person over... For right reasons, again, it's not bad. It Maybe if it's a legitimate criminal who needs to be handed over to the jailers, great, hand him over to the jailers. He deserves it. It, it only takes on the bad sense when uh, it's, it's done wickedly, it's done wrong, when, when he's done nothing that's deserving of being handed over, when uh, he's an innocent, sinless son of God, <laughs> and, and you are delivering him to the, to the uh, kangaroo court for his execution. Then, rather than deliver or hand over, it's acceptable to render it betray, because it is a betrayal. It's a betrayal because it's a broken trust. But uh, the verb itself technically is not a verb of betrayal. It's a verb of giving over. And so we can see it here. Now, in the variety of the uh, examples that we have, and I'm just giving you a short assortment of these. We're, We're by no means looking at the the 119 uses, but to hand over, okay, we got an example here in Matthew, 
try to pick as many Matthew uses as I could to keep it close to where we are today. Matthew uh, 11.27, if you recall this episode. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And this is our verb that we're looking at today, paradidomi. Now, in this context, we wouldn't render it, you know, betrayed, (laughs) in in the sense that Judas betrayed Jesus. Um, because there's no broken trust, there's no violation of anything, there's nothing improper about this. It's simply a handing over, in the basic sense of the word. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so a handing over can be a very positive thing. It can be a reward for faithfulness. It can be, it can be a recognition of the, uh, of, of the suitability. See, that uh, this, is, this is something you've been prepared for, you've been training for, and uh, we're now commending you to, uh, commend as a translation often in the New Testament for this, for this verb. Uh, another example would be 1 Corinthians 15.24. To hand something over. 1 Corinthians 15.24. Talking about the order of the resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead, first fruits of those who are asleep. Remember, Jesus Christ was the very first resurrection unto glory. The very first resurrection whereby, having cast off the uh, body of weakness, he has put on the body of strength. Now, this is a body of glory. This is a, a body that will never die again. Okay, All the, uh, the previous uh, resurrections or resuscitations, Lazarus and and uh, the the widow's son and other the Old Testament examples, uh, they were not resurrected to glory. They were restored to their mortal bodies and then subject to uh, physical death on a later date. And so uh, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Uh, since by a man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. And here's the order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Rapture doctrine that we'll be studying here on Sunday nights. And then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and authority and power. This is the great abdication that concludes the thousand generations of the fullness of time. This is the final event before eternity future commences. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so he hands over. Because when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. That's verse 28. But verse 24, then comes the end when he hands over. Para didomi, Hands over. Gives over. The kingdom to the God and Father. Okay? And then Father, Son, rule as co-regents for all eternity. 
So there's your two basic, uh, or there's two examples for the basic uh, instruction or the basic translation then to hand over. And at its core, that's all paradidomi truly means. Now, there are some uh, implications then attached to handing over if there is additional uh, expectation of care, if there's additional expectation of faithfulness, for example, then we might translate paradidomy as entrust. If I'm handing it over for your uh, entrusting, okay, then, uh, then paradidomy may be translated this way. And we see it in Matthew 25 where uh, some money has been uh, entrusted. Recall this from the Olivet Discourse. Kingdom of heaven is like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Paradidomi. He gave over his possessions to them. Not on a permanent basis, but uh, on a stewardship basis, entrusting funds and assets and resources to make use of. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. And I believe the, the giving term there is different from the paradidomy. Uh, and, uh, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. But verse 14, verse 20, verse 22 all have the paradidomy uh, verb that we're looking at here today. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you paradidomied, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And so obviously in this context, then, the, the giving over is with the expectation of, uh, of, of its use, of its proper use, of its care. Okay? When, you, when you give your child over to a babysitter, you're not permanently giving them your child ownership, but you are entrusting to their care. And then when your date is over or your evening or what have you, you're going to come back and reclaim your child in uh, ideally the same health and conditions that you dropped them off with, right? And, uh, and so forth. So it's a very positive example. Likewise, John 19.30, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Into thy hands, Father, I paradidomy my pneuma. In John 19.30, he's not betraying his spirit. Okay? So, it's not, don't, don't just think that paradidomy automatically has to mean betrayal. It doesn't. Uh, pretty much uh, when it's connected to Judas, yeah. <laughs> but in these other applications, it's not, uh, it's not a required rendering for the term. Finally, then, 1 Peter 2.23. 1 Peter 2.23. I think this goes well with the John 19.30. Because it shows that when he committed his spirit there at the end, it was really... Um, what he'd been doing all along. Notice, um, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. That's First Peter 2, verse 21. I'm headed for verse 23. But this, this passage, the context here of this paragraph is, is uh, making clear what I... Uh, said what I stated myself at the start of this hour is that we're learning by watching in the example of Christ and how he dealt with his betrayal. How you and I can be imitators of Christ and respond 
on a similar basis where we don't return evil for evil. We return a blessing instead. We view that betrayal opportunity as our test in undeserved suffering to then communicate um, Christ to a lost and dying world or to perhaps encourage other believers to, uh, to remain steadfast in their own testing. So uh, you've been called for this purpose. You've been called for this purpose. If you want to know what that is, you've got to back up to 18 through 20. It's the purpose of suffering undeserved, undeserved suffering. So, um, that's, that's verse 19. Finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Alright, well there it is. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Even when uh, you know he experienced the worst of it, he didn't stoop to, to responding in kind. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Now, how does he do this? It's explained right here. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself. And this is paradidomy. He kept giving himself over. And, and think of it as repeated action over and over and over again. Maybe it's a hundred times a day. How, how many times a day does it take? <laughs> well, every time that ugly thought rears its head again. Just stop. Nope. Father, I'm in your hands. Nope. Father, I'm in your hands. There's that ugly thought again. Nope. Father, I'm in your hands. And every time when the, the spark of uh, temptation reaches your mind that you could revile in return, you take that thought captive. Right? What we've been learning in first in Second Corinthians 10, you take that thought captive. And you don't revile in return. And you give yourself over. You just give yourself over. You give yourself over. And this is, this is the beauty of it, see. This is not, this is not a, a passivity whereby we're just, uh, you know, victims or we're just punching bags or we're just doormats. We let the world walk all over us, right? No. Because we're not giving ourselves over to the world. We're giving ourselves over to God. And so there, there we have it. We say, all right, Father, these are the circumstances. Until you see fit to change my circumstances, then I'm submitting to you, Father, for this present test. I'm not submitting to the ugliness of what the, the world's doing or what the, the adversary is doing. Okay. Kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And so this keeps you from getting your own reward. You just say, Father, this is a case before the Supreme Court of Heaven. <laughs> I'm not going to try it myself. I'm not judge, jury, and executioner in the angelic conflict. And uh, just entrust it to him who judges righteously. Father is in your hands. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. And even better, rather than repay with vengeance, wouldn't it be awesome if my uh, persecutor here actually came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? And then all of this stuff, rather than having wrath poured out, could, you, could be wiped away by the, by the cleansing blood of salvation. How about that? Wouldn't that be better? Another way that uh, paradidomy is used in handing over, if it is a uh, law enforcement uh, context or maybe a judicial context, then to deliver into custody. To deliver into custody. And we have this in uh, the Gospels. We have it in Acts several times where Peter and, and John are delivered into custody. They're put into prison. Uh, Matthew 4.12 is an example of this. And then, not everyone would put Romans into this uh, category, but I do. I, I think it's clear. 
Uh, let's start with Matthew 4.12. Um, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. And so this was uh, a stage early uh, after they had a brief period of ministry together uh, down near the, the River Jordan in the southern regions of, of Judea. Um, but then a point came where the Baptist was taken into custody. Herod uh, was uh, not enjoying uh, John the Baptist preaching against his immorality and divorcing his wife to marry his brother's wife. And, and uh, <laughs> so the prophet's preaching against that. And, uh, and Herod doesn't like being preached at, so he has John arrested. And uh, if you're familiar with the, the episode there. Anyway, taken into custody. The use of it there. Now, in Romans 1, you may not think of it in this way. Maybe you would classify this as a different rendering of uh, paradidomy. But what did we study when we studied Romans 1 and the sin patterns of uh, immoral depravity? And what happens in the church age when God gives you over? Okay. When God gives you over. Could you consider that as being given over to the custody of your sin nature? In a jail of your own devising? I think so. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but I think, the, um, <laughs> I think the church age application of wrath is uh, far worse than, than the Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, fire and brimstone Old Testament version of wrath. In a lot of ways, when the, uh, the fire and brimstone wrath of God is rather merciful. <laughs> Because it ends it, it cuts it off. It keeps, you know, it limits the destructive damage that can be done in uh, in whatever the behavior happens to be. Okay. Uh, you know, you wonder. <laughs> in any event, I don't think Sodom uh, lasted long enough for them to uh, to understand what a what a rampant AIDS epidemic was going to do to them. All right, because again, the fire and brimstone hit and they were absolutely obliterated before uh, any of the disease consequences maybe could be made known. But what happens in our day and age? God gives them over. God gives them over. And uh, we see that in verse um, 24, 26, 28. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts. This is paradidomy. He betrayed them. No, it's not a betrayal. He, he uh, incarcerated them. He uh, delivered them into custody. He gave them over to the lust of their heart. And you're now in custody, the lust of your heart. Okay. To impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Actually, inhuman passions. Passions that... Um, you know, God's designed our passions and then we pervert them. Sin perverts them. And I think with each of these, there's an intensification of the giving over. Their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In other words, uh, the lesbianism here, burning and desire for women rather than the natural function which is to be attracted to men. In the same way also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman instead of being attracted uh, to women then the uh, perversion here, the degrading passion here, um, which, which only diminishes the human to an animal level. 
desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The consequences within their own persons. That's not just body. Body and soul. Defilements of flesh and spirit, we're told. And then uh, additional giving over in verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To a depraved mind. So what's worse? The, the physical activities that are performed or the mind that actually craves those, de- those depraved activities? Sees nothing wrong with it. In fact, embraces it, wants it, lusts after it. That mind that's poisoned and I think that's why, as I said, I, I observe a progression here in the giving over. Three different stages. And our God being God of mercy allows repentance opportunities and recovery. At least through those first two stages. I'm not so sure about that third stage. All right. It's also used in positive ways rather than handing over to hand down in the sense of a handover from an older person about to leave the scene to a younger person just arriving, okay, as in the passing along of traditions, the passing along of traditions. And so uh, Mark 7.13 is a good example of that. 1 Corinthians 11 is a good example of that. Jude 3 is a good example of that. And it also helps to explain why. Uh, not only do we have the verb paradidomy, but we have the cognate noun parodesis. And parodesis is the, is the noun for tradition. Okay, that's Because what, what is a tradition? Something that somebody handed down to you, right? And, uh, and maybe it doesn't make any sense to anybody else, but it makes sense to you because it's your tradition. We've got family traditions that I'm sure are ridiculous for anybody else, but they're ours and we keep them up, all right? And you have family traditions, I'm sure, that wouldn't make much sense to me either, but that's fine because that's the way it is. Ours are ours and yours are yours and they are what they are. Uh, but the noun parodesis has the same para and then dosis, a noun cognate from the verb didomy. Okay? And so parodesis is number 3862. We're not going to look at any of those verses other than the fact that we hit some of them in connection with the handing down that we see in Mark 7, 13, 1 Corinthians 11, and Jude 3. So Mark 7, 13. Uh, this is where the Lord was rebuking the, Phil- the uh, not the Philistines, the uh, Pharisees. <coughs> And uh, they want to know, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat their bread with impure hands. And he has a whole message for them, starting there in verse 6. But it comes down to verse 13 where he concludes. He says, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, your parodesis, which you have paradidomy, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. They found ways to get around obeying the law, obeying Mosaic law, by creating these traditions that had the appearance of obeying Mosaic law, but they did just the opposite. They actually created, uh, <laughs> they, through the Korban dedication, they actually created, uh, um, not tax shelters, today we have tax shelters, uh, but they, uh, they created uh, uh, shelters to avoid supporting their, their parents. 
And sorry, Mom, sorry, Dad, this money is dedicated. This money is, has been devoted and set apart for Yahweh, aren't we holy? And, uh, and they're not honoring their father and mother. So they're actually violating Mosaic law in the process of their traditions. 1 Corinthians 11, communion. We did this, I uh, just cited these verses on Sunday. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. Okay. Paul didn't go to seminary in Jerusalem or go sit uh, with Peter and James and John or any of the other apostles. He went out into the deserts of Arabia, received personal seminary training for three and a half years from Jesus Christ, we're told. Which I'm kind of fond of because it was the deserts of Arabia where I received my calling to pastor-teacher ministry. It was during Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm, driving my first sergeant around some 26,000 miles on a Humvee and uh, praying about my gift and calling and everything else in the deserts of Arabia. So, um, 1 Corinthians 11.2 says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and you hold firmly to the traditions. Parodesis, okay? Or plural, parodesis. Just as I delivered them, handed them down, paradidomied them to you. Verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also paradidomied to you. For the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was paradidomied took bread. Okay, that's kind of a fun verse because it has paradidomy twice. Once for handing down a tradition and once for uh, Judas and his betrayal of the Lord handing him over to, uh, to the uh, Sanhedrin. So there you go. That's, that's kind of a neat verse. It includes, uh, includes two different senses of paradidomy in the same in the same verse. And then the last that we'll look at related to this is Jude. Jude verse 3. All right, Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. The faith which was once for all paradidomied, handed down, delivered to the saints. And there's the use of it there. The, the Christian way of life, our New Testament priesthood, the, the, um, the uh, yeah, Christian way of life, I like that terminology, given once and for all. The body of doctrine is revealed in the New Testament. The mystery doctrine revealing how it is that the royal family of God is supposed to operate. The body of Christ, the church of the living God, delivered once and for all to the saints. All right, so that's our vocabulary and what we're going to see throughout here pertaining to Judas Iscariot. Point B, Judas Iscariot is so connected to this betrayal. Judas Iscariot is so connected to this betrayal that his name can hardly be mentioned in the Gospels without being connected to this verb. Almost without exception. And the handful of places where you say, well, that's an exception, it's really not, because if you look a few more verses later, you're going to find that the betrayal will be mentioned or a concept related to it. Judas Iscariot is so connected to this betrayal that his name can hardly be mentioned in the Gospels without being connected to this verb. Starting with uh, the, the very first listing of the twelve disciples. 
uh, what we called, uh, remember the, the dodecapostologues we studied back in the day? Boy, that was a long time ago. What's a dodecapostologue? It's a listing of the 12 disciples. Okay. And they, they occur in Matthew, they occur in Luke, there's one in, uh, in uh, John, and there's one in Acts. There's four different listings of the 12 apostles. And in every one of those catalogs, every one of those dodecapostologues you're going to find, Judas is identified as the traitor, as the betrayer. So Matthew 10, 4, a whole bunch of times in Matthew 26 and 27. And, and when the other Judas is mentioned, it's always Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> okay? And we're going to meet him in heaven, and he's going to be, yes, I'm Judas, the other one. <laughs> I'm Judas, the one that didn't betray him. And that's what he's famous for. Okay? So Matthew 10, 4. Matthew 26, verse 15, 16, 21, 23, 45, 46, 48. Seven times in one chapter we're told that he's the betrayer. And then three more times at the start of chapter 27. Matthew 10. These uh, uh, catalogs, these, these apostle catalogs, are interesting. The names of the twelve apostles are these. Uh, because they're never identical. But, but they do have components that are always identical. As I said, you've got, you've got this listing here. Um, it also occurs in, oh, where? Mark 3. There's another one in Luke. And then there's one in Acts. The one in Acts only lists 11, to be fair, because by then Judas is dead. Um, but when you, when you look at the, at the four different places where you have listings of apostles, uh, Peter is always the first one. doesn't matter. He's always the first one in every list. Um, the first four of every list are always Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Not always the same order, but Peter is always first, and then Andrew, James, and John are always in the first four in, in random orders. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Philip is always the first one mentioned in the second group of four. Apostles five through eight are the same apostles in every list, even though they're scrambled. But Philip is always apostle number five in every list. He's always Apostle 5 in every list, and he's always Apostle 1 in that middle group of four. And then uh, the third group of four uh, is, again, scrambled, with the exception that Judas is always mentioned last. And um, uh, Apostle number 9 is always the same. Um, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus. Is always is the leader of that third. He's the he's apostle number nine. And he's the leader of that bottom third of uh, of the twelve. Always apostle nine in all these lists. Anyway, um, there's if you want to go back to the website, the the, the decapostolog classes is, is there. All right, uh, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. It's also interesting the pairings link up quite a bit. Simon is always paired with Judas. <clears throat> so when they use the buddy system um, uh, or, uh, you know, when he sent them out two by two on their training assignments, uh, think about Simon and what, what, a, what a bummer for him, right? I mean, he's always being paired up with this traitor. <laughs> okay. Actually, I suspect they got along very well together because the zealots were, uh, were uh, they were, 
you know, eager to throw off Rome. They were, uh, some, many of the zealots were involved in the, the terrorist organizations of their day. Uh, the assassins, the, the knife carriers that would, uh, <coughs> would uh, assassinate different Roman officials when they got the chance. So Simon the zealot was probably in real good company. They probably enjoyed his fellowship with Judas Iscariot in uh, many different applications. All right, back to Matthew 26 then. <coughs> the connection of Judas with the verb. <coughs> One of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest. And why do we know Judas's last name anyway? We don't know Philip's last name or Matthew's last name or in any event. They didn't have last names. But Iscariot is an interesting study. Went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me? Didemy, what are you willing to give me to paradidomy to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver. And evidently that's an amount that was agreeable to them. It's what he was worth in their eyes, or and he didn't dispute it or didn't ask for more. He said, uh, name your price, and he took it. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity, a kairos, opportunity to paradidomy him, to paradidomy Jesus. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table, that's verse 20, with the twelve disciples, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will paradidomy me. One of you will betray me. And the one who is going to do it knows he's going to do it. He already signed the contract. He's got the money in his pocket. He's sitting there at the table saying, Surely not I, Lord. While the 30 pieces of silver are burning a hole in his pocket. And uh, verse 23, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. And we, we studied this. Um, they had reached their hand in the bowl together. And Judas knows this. Okay. Judas, who was paradidomying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said, You have said it yourself. Verse 45, He came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. And then while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, he who was betraying him, gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Down into chapter 27, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. Well, we've already read. They bound him and led him away and paradidomied him to Pilate, the governor. And then when Judas, who had paradidomied him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver, saying, I have sinned by paradidomying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. So, we have a name that is so connected to this betrayal it can hardly be mentioned in the Gospels without being connected to this verb. It becomes proverbial. All right? Like Benedict Arnold in our culture. Okay? Benedict Arnold in our culture. Which, uh, some of you, I told the story. Did I tell the story on Sunday? I've told it in previous years. You know, there's the, 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 the single greatest trade. We've had other traders, of course, since then in the last 200 plus years of our country's history. But the one that stands out is the one during the Revolutionary War that uh, was one of our generals that became one of their generals and, um, in any event, Benedict Arnold. And that's 
that's who shares my birthday. Okay, and it just it's uh, it's tragic, <laughs> and it, and it's not fair. It's not, absolutely not fair. As I, my my good friend Stan Newton down there in Houston, his birthday is just two days before mine, and uh, what does he get? He gets he gets uh, John Hancock, you know, you get John Hancock the. First president of the Continental Congress who signed the Declaration of Independence with that great big signature, that tremendous hero of the American Revolution, tremendous American patriot, a faithful John Hancock, and then I get Benedict Arnold. So that's the way it works. In any event, Judas Iscariot is connected to this name. What I want to leave you with, though, let's understand this. (coughs) Despite every human... An angelic agency. The reality is that Jesus gave himself over in agreement with God the Father. Despite every human and angelic agency. So you can blame Judas, you can blame the Sanhedrin, you can blame the Romans, you can blame the Jews, you can blame the Gentiles, you can blame yourself. Okay? You know, uh, whose hand was holding the hammer? My hand was holding the hammer. Because I'm the center. Who pounded the nails into, into our Savior? I did. All right. But despite all of that, the reality is that Jesus delivered himself. So point C. Despite every human and angelic agency, maybe despite's not the right word, above and beyond, every human and angelic agency the reality is that Jesus gave himself over. Galatians 2.20, Ephesians 5.2, Ephesians 5.25. The reality is that Jesus gave himself over in agreement with God the Father. The Father gave him over. Romans 8.32. So Jesus gave himself over. We read that in Galatians 2.20, Ephesians 5.2, Ephesians 5.25. And he did so in agreement with God the Father because God the Father gave him over. Romans 8.32 And realize that is the primary giving over. Had the Father not given him over, the Son, remember the Son was in agreement with the Father's plan. Remember the entire point to the Mount Moriah story of Abraham and Isaac is it's the volitional test of the Father and the Father's willingness to sacrifice the Son. The whole point of Abraham and Isaac is to to illustrate God the Father's willingness to sacrifice God the Son. Yes, the Son's in agreement. Yes, Isaac carried his own wood. Okay. Yes, Jesus carried his own cross. Yes, Jesus was willing to do the Father's will. But the point remains, the first and foremost issue is that it's the will of the Father. It's the Father who's sacrificing the Son. That's the picture that's being painted. Okay, Galatians 2.20. And in these should not be uh, the first time you've ever seen these verses. <laughs> I expect you know them well. <clears throat> this was the verse that was read at my mother's funeral service. And I, by the way, I heard the recording from the uh, memorial service that was done a week later in Seattle. <coughs> and uh, 
my nephew uh, Logan got up in front of all the crowds with a microphone and, and read this verse there at the memorial service there. I was very proud of him. did a good job. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me with agape love, agapao, and gave himself up for me, paradidomi. He loved me and gave himself up for me. So remember, that's, that's above and beyond. Judas, the, the traitor, okay, above and beyond. And sure, he's accountable for what he did, absolutely. But when God the Father uses human volition to achieve his plan, it's still his plan being achieved. And Jesus Christ was in agreement with that. Ephesians 5. We're supposed to be imitators of this, by the way. <laughs> Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Like father, like son. Right? Chip off the old block. Be an imitator of God the Father. Christ was. See, some people immediately jump to verse 2 and say, well, this is to be an imitator of Christ. But verse 1 doesn't say Christ. Verse 1 says God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Christ himself learned from the Father. John chapter 5, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing that the Son may do likewise. And so, even as Jesus pleased the Father, we want to please the Father. Walk in love, just as Christ also, agapaoed you, and paradidomi, gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You want to be a fragrant aroma to God the Father? Then you need to walk in agape love. And you need to be willing to paradidomi whatever it is. If he asks you to, are you willing to paradidomi yourself for the sake of others? There's no greater love than this. Okay, Down to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and paradidomi gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Husbands, do you bathe your wife? Okay. This is metaphor. Okay. I don't want to know about that. Well, that's, that's between you and your marriage. I'm not getting into that. But beyond that, how about in the spiritual realm? Do you bathe your wife? Do you sanctify her with the word? Do you teach her? Do you lead her? Or do you just assume that, well, she goes to church. She gets fed from the pastor. Not the pastor's job. He has his own wife. And it's not yours. You better sanctify your wife. That's the uh, agapao and paradidomi application that is expected for each one of us. Jesus gave himself over in agreement with the Father giving him over. Romans 8.32 Romans 8.32 God is for us. Who can be against us? Isn't this wonderful? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. What shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who is against us? And who cares? <laughs> it doesn't matter who's against us. Now, we know who's against us, but it doesn't matter because we know who's for us. He who did not spare his own son, that's who's for us. That's who's for us. God so loved the world that he gave. Such was the love that God had for the fallen cosmos that he gave. He who did not spare his own son, but paradidomied him for us all. Gave him over for us all. That's the one who's for us. That's the one who's for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? The Father and the Son are now both totally free to give and give and give and give and give. Because the Father already gave the Son over and the Son already gave himself over. They've already done the most. They can certainly now do the least. They can certainly do now anything. Because they, they did what they did while we were yet sinners. Now we're in him. How much more are they free to do? And so we have the provision there. Hmm. It's interesting. This condemnation should not have been a surprise. The Lord himself connected it to his betrayal. The Lord himself said betrayal will lead to conviction. So it shouldn't have been a surprise. I think this is the kind of thing where you get the teaching, but you don't accept it. You don't believe it. You don't want to believe it. You don't want to think it's true. And of course, Judas is an unbeliever, so how is he possibly going to spiritually digest any of the teaching the Lord gave anyway? The condemnation should not have been a surprise because the Lord himself connected it to his betrayal. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. And yet, beholding the condemnation, beholding the condemnation, he planned it, he achieved it, but not until he saw it were his emotions triggered. Not until he saw it were his emotions triggered. The condemnation should not have been a surprise because the Lord himself connected it to his betrayal. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, Behold, I'm pretty sure it's the same, I'd have to look that up, the same behold, the same edu imperative that Judas is now beholding, edon, as a participle, uh, that Judas is beholding the, the conviction or the condemnation. But behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be paradidomied to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Condemnation, same verb that we have in in uh, today's chapter, chapter 27. And they will, pardon me, they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And on the third day, he will be raised up. This is the first use of the verb crucify. Before he'd used betray, before he'd used kill, now he is unveiling that it will be death on a cross. It will be the most excruciating death possible. It will be the pinnacle of Roman execution to, uh, to their criminals. So, <clears throat> when he saw that he was condemned, he felt remorse. Okay, we'll come back next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. We will uh, view the... Um, Significance of the beholding here. Don't have time 
to give you point E. Almost made it through point one. And then we'll move on to point two, where Judas felt remorse, not repentance, regret, human emotion, not sufficient unto eternal life. We'll uh, give you the different vocabulary terms and, and what their significances are. And also the, uh, the powerful uh, factor that guilt has in the lives of unbelievers and sadly carnal believers that uh, are, are racked with guilt and decide, well, if I could just do something, then it makes it somewhat better. Okay, I'll just do something. Um, I'll return the money or I'll um, sow fig leaves or I'll do, I, I've got to do something. I've got to make up for what I've done. And uh, humans try it. We try it. It never works. <laughs> okay? So quit trying and uh, confess, be restored to fellowship, and move on. Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study today. I pray, Father, that, uh, and we've studied before. We've studied betrayal with David and Ahithophel and Absalom. And we've studied betrayal in different applications. Uh, Paul faced betrayal in some of his ministries. But, Father, in, in so many ways, uh, this is the, 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 the pinnacle of betrayal in the Scriptures, the handing over of our Savior, the, uh, the Judas, even becomes proverbial to our day and age. Even our language uh, will call somebody a Judas. So, Father, um, I pray that, we would, uh, that you would open the eyes of our understanding to see the impact of this doctrine, that we might be motivated ourselves when we face betrayal to respond in a Christ-like manner in a way that, uh, that bears up under the undeserved suffering and uh, gives all the glory and honor where it needs to go. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.